everyone, and welcome to this week's Invisible Not Broken. I have another wonderful guest who is an amazing author of Bare Naked Bravery, Emily Ann Peterson, and she also did the best TEDx talk I've heard in a long time. I watched it three times. When you go over to the show notes, everything will be right at the top. So just head over to invisiblenotbroken.com, and her book will be right there, her podcast, which I have a confession I have not listened to yet, but right after I finish this interview, I will be heading over to her podcast. You can listen to her podcast in there. You can buy her book from there. So go on over and you can also, I think you play your music in your TEDx video in the first few minutes because I love cello music. <laughs> so Emily, it's so nice to hear from you. Thank you so much for, for contacting me. I really appreciate Thank that. Thank you for having me. It's so, it's, I, I was doing some research for a client of mine, a student and a client of mine on, you know, and the internet's an amazing, wonderful place. And I stumbled across. <laughs> no, that's um, optimism. <laughs> yeah, I, I stumbled across your site and was like, this chick knows what's up. And knows totally, what's up I was or like, just can't shut up. It's one or the she other. She and I are going to be good <laughs> friends. Well, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the Dolly Parton shirt, which I was like immediately loving. And I don't think you can see all of her tattoos, but I am I'm like I a seriously inked girl. And everything about your email is like, I can't wait on this. I'm going. I usually only batch emails once a week. So anyone who emails me is like, "Why has it?" It's at once a week. I look at my emails, and I think I like looked at it on accident. I'm like, oh, "I like her. <laughs> I like her." And also, good girl for batching your stuff. I mean, this honestly. Is, um, so we have so much to talk about about being sick artists, but that's the only way I can create. I can get yeah. into email like rabbit holes and I only have so many spoons as in I'm usually borrowing from tomorrow's spoons. So if I email at all, that's the day I'm done. I, I'm in a rabbit hole for like at least a few hours and then it's like, but I deserve some Pinterest time now and then nothing happens. <laughs> so your disorder is um, actually a friend of mine has it as well and he is a musician as well. So I was really excited to talk to you. Do you want to explain what your disorder is? Sure. So I was diagnosed with a, a degenerative neurological disease called essential tremor, um, and that diagnosis happened five years ago, and I started noticing the tremor about five and a half years ago. Um, oh, wow. So you are a you were a cellist at the time. Yeah, I was a cellist at the time, full-time musician, and everything in my life, I didn't know it at the time, but everything in my life was dependent upon the stability of my right hand specifically. Um, and da da da, that's I, where I just my tremor happened. There, I, like we were both lucky enough to be professional artists and to make our living as artists. When when it's not just the thing that keeps you sane and your hobby, but the actual way you pay your your rent, your mortgage, your life. Gets and it wasn't just financial; it was also. I looked around me after that diagnosis and realized that every person in my life was <laughs> in my life for because of the instrument. Not they didn't stick around just because of the instrument, right? But like that's how we first met was because I was doing what I do, which is music and um so that was also like another layer of why the whole diagnosis caused a massive deconstruction and um, dissection of my identity. And that like emotional and relational level was massive. Cause I didn't realize that I, my identity was so anchored into this piece of wood with some strings, you know? Um, uh, not only do I know, but you know, like when you meet someone and they say something where you're like, me too. Like, yeah. so me too. Like you feel it in your bones. Like that was what I called the great exodus was when I became so sick, I couldn't work anymore. And the people who were parts of my life, but there were parts of my life because either I met them through photography or, you know, but it was this huge exodus of people who, because I wasn't doing it anymore. It just, Oh, that resonates deeply. Yeah. It sucked. It was really bad. And I, uh, you know, the diagnosis was what got me into the subject of bravery. The book, my book is called Bare Naked Bravery, How to Be Creatively Courageous. And it's a like self-help um, memoir crossover uh, right when I was, well, after the diagnosis, I was awarded a six-week artist residency in the mountains of Washington. It was beautiful. 
terrible also, like really just hard to do. Um, did not, that was the longest time I had spent without touching the cello. Uh, Cause it was so painful for me, emotionally painful for me during those six weeks to sit there and go like, great, play the cello now. Cause it's ruining your life. Um, so and no I distractions to- either. I mean, I'm guessing you didn't have like your re- Wi-Fi and like other ways to like get your head out of this new reality. Mm-hmm. I had Wi-Fi in a different building and oh. it was really slow. So, but like my studio space was in um, a room with no internet and just instruments that I had brought. Um, one of the other instruments that I brought was a keyboard and I asked the hosting nonprofit organization, um, arts organization, if it was all right, if I didn't play the cello, they had actually selected me for this artist residency to write and record a new album for cello. And I arrived with this diagnosis and was like, so (laughs) here's the deal. (laughs) I can do it. Like I can suck it up and do this thing if you need me to but I really don't want to. And I really need to not like I've, I'm don't have to do any work. I don't have any students. I don't have any studio sessions scheduled or booked. Is it all right if I spend the six weeks just like creatively sulking, so to speak? Okay. I'm using creatively sulking for the rest of my life. I'm stealing it. Yeah. It's, it's good. I highly recommend it because it was exact. It was what I needed to, um, not reconstruct, but find an identity that was already there. So what was, what does creatively sulking look like for you? I know what creatively sulking looks like for me and it's massive Pinterest moments. What does it look like for you? Um, I think that, you know, my like achievement oriented self would say that it looks like wasting time. Mm. Um, my like spiritual self would say that it looks like, um, full alignment on a creative scale, like just doing whatever feels good at that moment. Um, sometimes it, it, for those six weeks, it was learning other people's songs on an instrument that I was sort of familiar with, but not familiar enough with. Um, I, I was also, I'm trying to go, that was a long time ago. I'm trying to go back (laughs) through I'm good at doing this, getting everyone off track. I no, it's good. I because it's it's important. So the it was a lot of I did a lot of cover songs. Like I just learned some cover songs just because that was fun and why not. Um, and then I also was doing some free writes, um, like just stream of consciousness writing. Um, I attempted to archive all of my journals and then that gave me too many migraines. And so I decided to burn them and I did. That sounds cathartic. It's great. That's, I would say that's creatively sulking. That was definitely like, <laughs> can we go with creative temper tantrum? Cause I feel like that needs a little bit more yeah. than sulk. Yes, exactly. It was, a, that was a temper tantrum. It was also really healing to, um, there's a lot, to my story and um, all that's in my book. Um, and, and in fact, I did a chunk in my book on why burning those journals was so powerful and um, created such a good diving board for me to go into my bravery deeper. Um, Cause I was free of the censorship and free of the, the memories and baggage of previous versions of struggle and seasons of bravery. So it was, I was able to just go like, you know what? Let's move on. (laughs) Wow. Um, That, um, that has like that superhero epic, like big flames in the background as you walk away feeling to it. Oh, it was great. And then my, my, I had a friend who's way into like woo woo ceremonial kind of (laughs) stuff. And she was like, you know what you should do with the ashes. This is all via text, right? Cause she's back in the Seattle Tacoma area and um and she goes you should take all the ashes and dump them in the river so that all of the ashes can like go and do what they need to do and it was fantastic I loved that that was I love that so for two reasons I mean there's there's the beautiful side of it and then there's the someone could read that text without having context to it and really wonder about you and I love that too oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> 
So just a little mischief ashes. goes I mean, a long way. <laughs> there, you you couldn't read them obviously because it's just pow- powdery charcoal ash, right? So putting that in the river was just like metaphorically and symbolically let those words go on and do what they need to do. So that was really, really powerful. So that's some of the creative sulking that I did out there. But I got done with the six weeks and had uh, about a a good handful of songs that I had written on keyboard, on piano, um, like singer-songwriter kind of stuff. And... Uh, that wasn't surprising to me because I had been in bands before. I had done songwriting before, like as a co-writer, but it was the first time I had done solo songwriting, and I knew enough about music because I had been a musician for forever <clears throat> that I knew that the the songs weren't weren't half bad. Like they weren't the best songs in the world, but I also knew like, oh, this is something here, and um, it, the the overarching message from that grieving period was I, I am not a cellist. I'm an artist Mm. and I'm an artist that has something to say. And if I'm going to say these things, I'm going to have to be brave. And then I came across this hurdle that I was like, are we allowed to cuss? Oh, fuck. Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. (laughs) Um, we I don't like, have to hurt and like go through our entire lives being upended right. and not get to swear. I just like to ask because <laughs> otherwise, no nope, fair. Have to like censor me out. So, um, I if I'm gonna be a songwriter, I'm gonna have to be brave. And then the massive question was, what the fuck is bravery? Mm. Like, how do you be brave? How do you just be brave? You know. You, like, and I'm sure that other people who have chronic illnesses, you know, they have family and friends who are like patting them, metaphorically patting them on the head or shoulder and going like, you're so brave, be brave, be brave. And you're, you kind of want to just give them a middle finger. Like, um, <laughs> I like you so much. Um, right. <laughs> it's right up there. inspiring for me. I'm like, if it's something that I didn't have a choice in, I'm not going with inspiring. Please don't set the bar for me that low. Like that's. That that hurts when the bar is set that low. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, when you just said, like, I am not a cellist, I'm an artist, I that hit so hard because I was a dancer, and then I couldn't do that, and then I was a jeweler, I couldn't do that, and then I was a photographer, and I couldn't do that. And it was like, well, I guess I'm a storyteller, because that's all I've done my whole life is find a new way to tell stories. So I'm going to put it under that overarching umbrella that doesn't get defined by my body, and what my body defines what I can and can't do. That, um, yeah, you, you're hitting me really hard on a lot of this. I, this is, this is like, that, before my uh, second cup of coffee, too. <laughs> like, trying yeah. to emotionally and mentally catch up with you. Well, it's been really fascinating to see. Since I published my book, um, it's, first of all, it's weird that a songwriter or a musician would write a book and publish it. Um, it's an abnormal thing. That's That in and of itself is a brave thing in our in, in industry-wise to, like, cross to cross genres is one thing, but to ca- cross an entire industry is like, what the hell are you doing? Um, but that has been such a gift for me to see that the artists that ha- are working in multiple mediums are the ones who often are more financially stable, not just because they're diversifying their income, that is part of it, but also because they're able to see that it's not about the CD. It's mm. not about the album. It's not about the, the earring that's hanging from their customer's ear. It's about the other thing. And it, that other thing is um, when you acknowledge what that other thing is, it makes it really easy to make more decisions as an artist, for instance. So, like I've realized that my thing is bravery. Now I can talk about bravery in a house concert. I can play songs that feature bravery, stories of bravery. I can on social media talk about other people's bravery and my own bravery and um, fear of bravery and all the ingredients of bravery. And those are things that basically those are the those that's the paint that I can paint with as an artist metaphorically. Ooh, this is getting real meta. That is beautiful. No, I am all about this. 
but I would say so, cyber But it makes it easier when you have a chronic illness and like every every fucking thing is getting taken away from you. Yeah. But you still have stories and you still have connection and you still have your true self and and how that gets connected or delivered or served to other people um, as a business owner that can the methods and the modes and the mediums can all change, uh, but you can still do what you do ultimately. So I was completely cyber stalking you this morning after I finished mm. following you on all your social media accounts. I went and watched your interview and you said something that was just so beautiful about um, bravery and vulnerability and how that's the cover. I mean, first off, you're epically stunning and your cover is yourself and it's a beautiful cover. And what you were saying about the beauty of vulnerability and bravery, I, I'm going to paraphrase it wrong. So I will let you talk about it because it hit me so hard. It's so fascinating. Um, when we did, when we picked the cover of the book, um, there were two options. One had a bluish, purplish background and actually had more nudity of me. Um, the backside of me diving backwards, basically. Um, and then this other one had me with my hands crossed in front. Um, and you just see like cleavage and shoulders and the lower half of my face. Um, there was, it was split down the middle between my fans. Like half of them really loved like the full nudity um, because that's like exhibits the brave, the, the vulnerability required to be, you know, do something that scares you. But I ultimately picked because it was split. I was like, Oh, I'll be the tiebreaker because I know that true bravery is when you are able to be vulnerable, mm. but in control of who is seeing or how vulnerable you are being. And <laughs> wow. Right. Mm. So when, um, cause otherwise if you're just like, if you have no choice about how much, let's say nudity, how much you're exposing yourself to the world, um, that's, that's called rape or assault, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, oh God, how how many times can we go through this definition? I mean, like right? when you're seeing like these women apologizing for taking photos that get like forced out into the public, and you're like, don't fucking apologize for that. You have nothing to apologize for. The person who did that has the apology to be making if there ever could be enough of an apology. Like, sorry, that I, we do, we're, if anyone's listening to this, we're probably like three months ahead of this, but the Kavanaugh hearings just happened and I've been rocking back and forth in a fetal position for like 72 hours. So <laughs> consent yeah. has become a huge part of the discussion in my, my world, my family, my preteen and my teenager I've been talking about was nothing else except consent and yeah well, sorry and, and this brought, <laughs> like I this brings up a good good topic because I talk about this in my book like what's the difference between victimhood and vulnerability and the oh. difference is <laughs> and the difference is that with vulnerability you are the one tearing down the wall of boundary that you've set between yourself and the person that you're being vulnerable with if someone else tears down that wall, you are a victim. Um, I but feel not like almost everything powerless. you're saying needs to be put on tattoos. Like, yeah, yes, I, I've never heard it explained that well before because, like, people are talking about Christina Ford, and like, you're right, she'd be a victim because she came forward silently and that was forced open. Which is, you're you're really amazing at breaking things down. I'm I'm so <laughs> impressed. That's that's my secret sauce as a songwriter. Like that's wow. the skill. Like as a songwriter, and then it's it's it, as songwriters, we have to take really complicated subject matter and boil it down to three to five minutes. Well, I mean, you bring up like some of like what got me through high school, which was me and a gun, Tori Amos, and almost every Annie Franco spoken word was like totally what made me survive. And that was where I decided that you don't get to hide anything because these two women kept me alive because they were so raw bone, honest and uh, trigger warning for anyone. Me and a gun only to be listened to around support networks. Like, <laughs> Make sure right. you have support. But I just have such an affinity for songwriters because that's a level of vulnerability that even I write fiction. I don't have that vulnerability because I can hide behind a character. 
when you're doing your songwriting. I agree with you. <laughs> oh? But. Okay, it's fine. But I'll let it pass. Uh, no, 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 feel free. I have a teenager. I haven't been right in 17 years. Go for no, it. No, <laughs> I just, I think that you can still be very, very, very vulnerable without, um, as an author, as a writer, without you being the subject at hand. And that happens with me and the songs that I write too. Like I have sometimes have to step aside, like my personhood steps aside when I'm writing a song that involves a character. Like say for instance, the song I just wrote about yes. the Senate judicial <laughs> hearings. Um, <sighs> I had to set, I am not the subject of the song, even though I'm the pronouns I'm using is you, me, them, and me being Christine Blasey Ford or someone who's experienced sexual assault. Um, so it is still my job as a writer to display the vulnerability and connect with the listener and tell a story with a listener um, in the same powerful kind of way that it would be if it was just me and you, you know, Emily Ann. And, <laughs> and, and, and so I think that as a fiction writer, you can still do the same thing. So I have gotten impressively off track because uh, Kyrus is yeah. probably going to be laughing in the background. I am so bad at doing a follow through. And, and when I was so excited to talk to you, there was like all these things. I'm like, I have to ask her this, this, and this, and this. Um, I want to go back a little bit as we're talking about bravery and vulnerability and get to the six months before your diagnosis. Yeah. As the um, I didn't have you explain what you have. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so it's a tremor in my right hand. So mm -hmm. when my hand is not um, resting on something, uh, and it's basically being held out in the open, it shakes. And it looks like I've had too much caffeine, which I have had today. <laughs> I've had too much caffeine. But one of the lifestyle changes, um, I would say one of the most, one of the lifestyle changes that I've had to make is if I'm in a performance season, I eliminate caffeine. Because the caffeine is significantly a not a good thing for me to be having, it does not help the tremor at all. So was that um, an, like a quick thing, or it just suddenly started happening, or was it a slow onset? When did you first notice? It was slow. Um, I started noticing it during things like I, if I hold a fork or a pen, because it's light enough that my hand, my stabilizing muscles aren't engaged. Um, and so the pen will shake just because it's like, it's just so light that my stabilizers aren't engaged in that action. Um, so something like holding a pen or a fork was when I started noticing that my hand was shaking and I was um, automatically assumed like, Oh, it's too much caffeine or you just need to calm down, Emily, or why are you so nervous? Like those were the things going through my head. Um, I started noticing people noticing it mm. like I didn't I wasn't talking about it at all but I would be talking with a friend over dinner or something and I would tell be telling them a story talking with my hands with my fork in my hand or something like that and I would see their eyes dart over to my fork and I'd look down and my hand was shaking and I would just wouldn't like it was I wouldn't acknowledge it or talk about it at all because I, I was just that brief instant of like, wow, they noticed, huh? Interesting. Um, then there was one day I was dating this guy who was really acutely aware of details and it was wonderful and very sweet, especially when he acknowledged that he noticed things. Oh. Um, however, this moment was a little bit aggravating because I said, oh my gosh, this is so strange. My hand is shaking. That's so weird. He goes, yeah, it's been shaking for the last, like, two months. Oh. And I was so pissed that he didn't tell me that he knew he, that he noticed. Um, but I think he could, like, put two and two together that this was a big, like, that wasn't something that was a good subject to just kind of go, hey, how's your, how's your hands <laughs> shaking? Um, <laughs> so... Emily Post has never written a book on this, by the way. No one knows the proper <laughs> etiquette for, I think there's something in your life that's going to blow up really soon. Let's work on this. <laughs> I know, I know. So um, there was a day that I was, you know, it was getting progressively worse just a little bit 
over the course of, I would say, like four or five months or so. Um, I one day was getting ready to have a day of cello lessons and was warming up in my teaching studio um, playing the cello and I heard the tremor and I, I I'm a professional cellist so I know enough about the mechanisms of body movement and um, the efficiency of movement and all of the things the inner workings of technique and how to use the bow I've been doing it for a long time so I knew that if I could not control my hand at this point <laughs> in my career that I it was screwed totally screwed so that was the day I called my general practitioner and because it looks a little bit like Parkinson's my GP was really concerned about it because you know she's not a neurologist so she practically held my hand going up to the neurologist's office and, who diagnosed me almost instantly because he was like, you don't have Parkinson's. There are other symptoms that you don't have if you were to have Parkinson's. That is um, the ultimate good news, bad news moment. Like, right? So, Congratulations. You don't have Parkinson's. But, but your life. Really yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah. I hear that so well. <laughs> yeah. So the doctor was really sweet. He... You know, there was over a course of the several appointments that we had, um, there was one moment where he's writing the second prescription for a different medication because the first ones didn't work like we wanted them to. Um, and I remember looking down at the floor and just kind of going, so this isn't going to go away, is it? And he looked, put his pen down and looked up at me and just said, no, it's not going to go away. And, and then later on in a different conversation that he and I had, he, he was like, we have to get you playing music. Like you are the neurology patient that I wake up in the morning for, because we need more music in the world. We need mm. to get you back to playing music. You know, like this needs to happen. Um, so an essential tremor is one of the most common neurological diseases but it has um there's a lot of people who have it a lot of people who have it. it's typically diagnosed when you're 40 or older because it is degenerative so oftentimes you'll notice it when you're nervous in your 20s and about ready to give a performance or a speech or presentation at work or something um and then later on in life, then your hands start shaking or your neck starts shaking or your voice kind of quivers. So a lot of times when people are diagnosed with it, they're retired already. They don't have an income that depends on this. Um, and so because of that fact or that factor, there's not a lot of um, research money that goes into finding a cure for this uh, because it's just not it doesn't have a high pain point, you know, um, like migraines, say, for instance, are completely and totally debilitating in the very moment. But so what? Your hand shakes. You know, that's like not a as big of a, a thing um, when you're first diagnosed. So uh, I have it's it is hereditary. So I have um, my dad's handshakes and then also on my mom's side, my grandmother's head shakes and my great grandfather's hand shook when he was still, when he was alive. So, um, it's on both sides of my family, which is great genetic lottery. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the stars just align so beautifully. And it's true. Like I say that facetiously, but I also, on this side of that season of bravery, I know that it's, it has only been good things for me. Only been good things. You're obviously uh, very ahead of the curve if you're starting these things at 20 something. (laughs) That's, um, you're really good at breaking things down. What do you think was, um, what do you think people should do when they first get diagnosed with something that's life changing? I mean, Take a deep breath. <laughs> Take six of them. Actually, there's uh, a study in, uh, there's a Japanese study that 
proves that taking six large deep breaths in a row drastically lowers your blood pressure. And when you can lower your blood pressure, you're physically putting your brain chemistry in a better place to make better decisions. So when you're freaking out and like running around like a hamster on a wheel, um, that's not helping you make good decisions. So if you have just gotten really tragic news, the best thing to do is literally take six deep breaths. That's that's a good first start. And what about for the months afterwards where you're deciding who you're going to be and what you're going to do? One step at a time. And then also um, nothing is permanent. So when it comes to like, you know, like I, in the months after my, um, diagnosis, I had various part-time day jobs that were not fun, but they were, they gave me the space to mentally and emotionally do more of that grieving process, um, to pick the next thing. Um, yeah, it sucks. It's, it's going to be hard. It's not like, I don't have any easy answers. Um, but I think that that was one of the main reasons why I wrote the book because there were no easy answers out there. Everybody's got, there's a ton of books on fear and there's a ton of books on anxiety and, um, and, and Brene Brown is doing like world altering research in the realms of wholeheartedness and courage and all of that. Um, but those are all theories and I hadn't read a book that was like, no, here are the ingredients. Like, if you're missing one of these, you're making your life hard. Um, and so that's what the book is about. You know, I, I wanted to make sure that there was a book available for somebody else who was going through something like what I was going through. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, at least for me, the, the bravest thing I ever did was grieve. That was the hardest thing for me to do because I am the person who cannot go be in the in-between space. I refuse to go to the in-between space. I always run to the next thing. The second one thing isn't working. I want to uh, burn it and then scatter the ashes in a river <laughs> before I can even look at it and then move to the next thing. So when I got this sick and I had to give up my business, that was the bravest thing I did was to actually allow some time to just be still and say goodbye to that person I was. And that was hard because I was also saying goodbye to most of my social structure, my income, and um, then I tried to figure out what to do next. And that was the hard thing. I, I'm just wondering, how, like, how did that work for you? Because you also had a huge social... <laughs> well, that's all, folks. Um, this is what happens when you mix painkillers with caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Yes, thank you, Jeff Sessions. Um, we had a big social structure shift, and I'm guessing income shift, and then you went off to a retreat. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of change in the middle. I mean, I'm so glad you had that quite oh, forced time, but totally, I, yeah. That's and the grieving lot. process was not over after those six six weeks. I just want to be very clear <laughs> that it took a very long time, um, and I started my podcast and I started the research for my book during the grieving process, during like the tail end of the grieving process, really. Um, Cause I still, I didn't know what bravery was. So I just started with the people around me who I knew were brave. And I just started asking them questions like, why do I think that you're brave? And why is it that this story that you have in your history is like the coolest, most heroic thing I've ever heard. And how come you're not famous, you know, like for doing this thing. And, you know, um, and everybody's responses were the same. Like, um, and I started noticing over the course of all of these interviews, which some of them are podcast episodes, some of them were private. Um, I started noticing over the course of these interviews that similar themes kept sh popping up, like vulnerability, like improvisation, like imagination, which are the three big ingredients of bravery. Um, also things like I'm not brave or doing that thing did not feel brave or Right. So, so if you just got diagnosed, your life is like blowing up around you. The last thing it feels like is brave. Um, it feels like fear, like bravery oftentimes feels like fear. And um, 
I, I think that uh, when you are able to creatively utilize your fear, that is when you're being courageous or brave because bravery and courage are the same thing. It's such a toxic idea that bravery is the absence of fear, wherein I feel like it's almost this embracing of fear and going, okay, I'm terrified and everything is going wrong, but I'm going to choose to still breathe and I'm going to still choose to create or to do something in the middle of it. And like Neil Gaiman, one of my favorite humans on the face of the earth and his wife, I Amanda fucking Palmer. I mean, come on. How do you not love her? But She's great. what he wrote about that, whatever has just gone horribly wrong, make art out of it. Because you don't yeah. have a choice of what's happening to you. The only choice you have is how you respond. Yeah. Can you tell him a mom, mom, this is like what I have to say, like every like 20 minutes, you can't control what happens. You can only control your response. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, um, you know, when I was, so there's one podcast interview that is really going to like make you cry. If you are in the mood for a good tissue session, then this is a good one. So Holly Margell is a photographer in the Seattle area. And um, if you just go to my website at the very bottom of my site, emilyannpeterson.com, there's um, a search bar. And if you just type Holly, H-O-L-L-I. I'll link it in the um, show notes. Then that, that'll show up. Um, she is a photographer from, from the Seattle area, awesome photographer. And she also lost her mom to breast cancer. And we got to this moment in the interview. It was pretty fresh. I didn't know at the time that how fresh, um, her, her mom's passing was. Um, but we got to this point in the interview where she was telling us like the moment that her mom passed away in the hospital and all the family like looked at each other and then they had to leave the hospital room <laughs> and they had been preparing for this moment. It was like sudden, you know, like a really, it happened fast, you know, like over the course of a couple months, but this moment that they had all been waiting for happened. And then what? <laughs> and that's exactly what I, I was like, then what did you do? And she goes, and her response was like, we did the next thing. <laughs> And sometimes that's all you can do when your life is really just really fucked up. And all you can do is just the next thing. I'm a Doctor Who geek to the nth level. And one of my favorite episodes was when the doctor is just sitting there after Clara's gone. And he's talking about how, like, that day is the easiest. It's the day after that's the hard. It's yeah. like there's something to do when it's the easy part, it's those quiet moments in between. And I firmly believe that grief is its own chronic invisible illness because it's not something that goes away and it takes such a huge part of your, your soul and your mental capacity of what's going on. And like the background noise is just this yep. like empty void. And that's something that so many people carry around every single day. And it's not something, it's something that like someone described it as a tsunami and the wave comes in really hard and you're just trying to not drown and just trying to come up and trying to come up. And these giant waves keep coming the second you catch your breath. And that over time, those waves space out, but they never go away. And that was like the realest thing I ever heard about grieving was that it's not something that stops. And it's not something that doesn't hit you just as hard. It's just the space in between sometimes gets further out. I've also seen heard the, the metaphor that... Um, Bravery, I mean, bravery, just yeah, <laughs> habit, habit, um, grief, uh, or losing someone or something in your life leaves a hole in your life. And then life just grows around that hole. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, if you think about who you were, and I, I can say this because like, at least I, I think I can because of, I was an artist. I was a photographer. That was everything that I was. So I wasn't just saying goodbye to my business. I was saying goodbye to this huge aspect of who and what I was and how I, you know, almost my entire day and my identity of what I was. I was a female business owner. I was, I was doing all these things and I was also a storyteller for people's families and for women's bodies and who they were and saying goodbye to that person was hard. And then saying goodbye to not necessarily the people, there's still people who are here, but that that part of our relationship was different now. But mm -hmm. I wasn't that person that I was, even in my marriage, that there was this change in who I was going to be. And that was hard for us to readjust. Were mm -hmm. you, did you have people in your life that 
that you had to like rearrange how and who you were with or did was that were you just better yes. at breaking things down than I am because that's entirely possible <laughs> no there was definitely like there are friends who I love and adore um I would I would call them colleagues but I I think they're friends, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but it was clear that after the cello was gone that they were colleagues mm. more than they were friends. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I, uh, I 90% of my social life, yes, back then, right? was, was people that I thought were, like, very, very emotionally close. We shared everything. But it was also because we had business interests at heart and that once those business interests were gone, it just didn't line up. Right, right. Yeah. It's very similar to, I mean, the opposite of this is, like, when your friend has a baby and you don't have a baby <laughs> – then like suddenly you're not gabbing with each other at the coffee shop or over happy hour. You're at the playground and getting interrupted. And that's a very different kind of relationship. Not bad. Like I still have friends. I have, I'm not. Some of my best kids. friends have babies. Yes, I got it. <laughs> Yeah. But some of my best friends have still have babies, but it's a fact that our relationship changed after mm. the baby arrived. Yeah. I can like, speak on it from the other side. I had a son very young. And none of my friends, my friends are just having babies now, like right now. And my son is ready to actually move up next to you. We're flying up next to you in a few weeks just because he okay. wants to move up there. So I have this kid who's getting ready to leave the house and all my friends are having their first. And it was really hard to, it wasn't as violent of a shift, but it was definitely a huge shift on how people saw who I was, what I want to do, what my interests would be. Whether I had brain power or not was a very big question for the first five years after he was born. Seriously, the mommy brain thing is real. Like, I got it okay. back just now. My youngest is a preteen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a thing. It's a thing. Well, I, I, I just moved to Nashville, so I don't know what oh, you're Oh, no. I thought you were up in up there. Seattle. Yeah, I just moved to Nashville oh. just now. I got done with the book promo tour and concerts from this last tour season and was like, you know what? It's cheaper in Nashville. Ha! Oh my God! I just watched Let's the live there. best like interview with like these. Um, it was the the rulers of the realm. I am a total nerd. I swear. And it was like all these fantasy writers, and they asked these very famous fantasy writers, "What's your best advice for a new fantasy writer?" And they're like, "Move out of Seattle, San Francisco, San Diego, and New York. Move to the middle of the country where you won't have to worry about like paying rent." That's, it's a, that's it's a, real. It's a really good advice. Really good advice. Because otherwise you end up um, investing all of your energy, which if you have a chronic illness, you have a limited amount of energy. What energy? So what is that again? <laughs> you, that if you are investing all of your energy in staying in a location, then you're not spending that energy in creating more things. That is a beautiful point. And I will remind all of our international audience, South Korea, thank you, by the way, for listening. I'm really amazed. Um, it's expensive to be sick here. <laughs> I don't know what your yeah. your um, your physical therapy is like for your tremor or what, what you have to pay to, to keep things going, but mine can top over $1,000 very easily a month, even with insurance. So when you can move somewhere that's less less stressful, that definitely helps with, with the, the bills. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, financially is the finances are a totally different subject, but I was just talking about like energy wise, mm -hmm. like in order to stay in the city, you have to pay rent. And so you have to, or mortgage or whatever. So you have to have a job to support that thing or your, or your job or your creativity has to create enough financial stability that you can stay in that one location. Um, which then ultimately comes down to like, you have limited amount of energy. <laughs> yes. And we don't have a, and it's important for our international audience to realize this, we don't have any safety nets the way that other countries do. So if you don't work for a corporation, you don't have health insurance unless you pay for it privately, which easily gets to $1,000 a month to pay privately for it. So if you want to be an artist full time, that is an incredibly dangerous proposition to have because you are paying for your own health insurance. Just a little sideline on on why uh, why things in the U.S. are a little bit more. Well, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this has heard our news stories and knows how stressed all of us are right now. But I just always feel like it's important to put that underline into this. Um, you also put onto your profile. I didn't realize this that you had hypothyroidism. Yeah. So that's so another like 20 spoons taken away from you daily. I'm scooting my chair closer to the desk. Yes, yes, I'm let's. in it. I'm in it now. 
Um, I, so published my book in January of this year. Around that time, I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism. For the last 10 plus years, I have had like a kind of on the low side of energy. This is also a hereditary thing on my dad's side. Um, I have a lot of family members that are on levothyroxine. And um, I had gotten my blood tested before like 10 years ago. And the doctor was like, oh, it's a little low, but it's not low enough to put you on any medicine. So I fucking suffered for 10 years because this one lady said that it wasn't bad enough for me to take any action on it, which she had a point like she has a point. Um, at the time, I also was depressed. And so we weren't sure if like, okay, well, maybe it's the depression that's like, you know, whatever. <sighs> Zoom forward. And I'm in the middle of my book launch. Um, I self-published the book. Um, and it was a bestseller in the first week. So awesome. It was very awesome success. However, I was taking like necessary naps multiple times a day. And was feeling really shitty about myself because of the nap situation, needing to take the nap all the time. There was also some other really bizarre symptoms, um, hormonal related. And I finally was like, there was like a emotional roller coaster day and ended up just crying in the shower. Like, I don't want to feel like this. This is not how somebody should feel. I shouldn't want to like kick my dog and then punch a pillow and then cry about it immediately. Like in like the span of 10 seconds. Um, I didn't kick my dog by the way, but I Peanut, really do not call to. us. <laughs> I really wanted to, but I knew that I didn't, I didn't actually want to do it, but I had this like rage that I couldn't oh. control. And then just fear about like, who am I? Who is this person? Um, Went to doctor. He did the blood test. Da da da. Hypothyroid. Um, it was a little bit worse than before, but the doctor fortunately was like, "Well, since you have six family members who are on levothyroxine and it works for them, why don't we just put you on it and see what happens?" And it's great. I don't need naps anymore. Like it was as simple as that. Wow. <laughs> I, I, how often do any of us with chronic illness get to take a pill and it actually gets like significantly better? Like that's so, so rare in our world. <laughs> like, but I will say this, that like, it has been a blessing because one, I get to take naps now and know that it's actually helping me completely. You know, um, I know that I need it when I need a nap. I actually do need a nap. I'm not being lazy. Um, that's such an American thing, isn't it? Like something that's self-care, we need to justify with a like doctor's note or something. Like, I know. Is that just American or is that just American female? Because like there's just something about like every woman I know and even a lot of men too. I mean, like, I feel like it's just how we're almost raised here in this country that like this work until you fall over dead is almost like this sort of badge of honor. Oh. It's not one I'm proud of, but yeah. I have I have that badge. So I that was I, given um, out of the scouts, I'm sure. <laughs> oh yeah. Girl Scouts when I was six, I got one. I I think that one of the things that has really been great about having chronic illnesses in you know, plural. Mm -hmm. Um We never get that, just one. We get to collect them all. Like I, like <laughs> pogs. <laughs> when I I now am like a supreme automator. Mm. Everything in my life is either batched, automated, systematized, or really organized um, out of necessity. But it also gives me the benefit of that is it gives me space in my day to write a song when I want to, to take a nap if I want to, to clean the bathroom if I am suddenly feeling like it, you know? Um, so that automation and automation is not just like pick a software and, or hire a robot, you know, to do it. Automation is like, um, getting in the habit of doing something when somebody says, Hey, can you remind me to do da da da? I immediately grab my phone and go, Hey Siri, remind me on <laughs> Tuesday, da 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 da, and that's gonna 
Yeah, thank you, Siri. And uh, what's the Google one? There's, yeah, my son has the Google one. It's the best yeah. thing ever. Do you have any favorite like batch tips or are those in your book? Um, those are not in my book. I actually, that would be a fun book to write, wouldn't it? I think I've got a lot of things to say. I mean, if you want to come back on the podcast or do a monthly how to batch your life as a chronic illness blog post, I would not say no to not having to write that blog post that week. I would be very grateful if you wanted to do a column for the podcast or the blog, that would be Fantastic. We're going to talk. <laughs> Excellent. Gonna talk Good. Because I, I, I have there's a lot you. of things. I, <laughs> I use Zapier a lot, um, which is basically a software that uses API keys and connects other softwares to each other. So I can basically say, when this software does this one thing, I want you to do all these other things to these other softwares. Um, so with my podcast, basically I have like, okay, when somebody schedules an appointment with me here, um, create three Google calendar appointments, send an email to this person, do this, do this, do this, um, and add a Trello card, put the Trello card in this list in this folder, and then add all these files to that Trello card. So it does all like the back work for me so that I know that like, at the time of the appointment, I just have to open up a file and everything that I need is right there. So I'm taking notes because everyone who's like emailed me for appointments for the podcast knows I am horrible at this. <laughs> and uh, I, yeah, I'm going to get more organized you, now. <laughs> one of the things that I've done, you know, one of the ways that I've diversified my artistry is I've founded a school of bravery. So what I do is there's two master classes a month and then weekly office hours with me, unlimited amount of office hours on, um, I just check in on everything on Wednesdays um, via Voxer. So it's super accessible and like low, low time cons- consumption. But one of the classes that I'm going to teach in the future is like, let's hack, tre- let's hack your life with Trello because it's one of the best things for content creation that I use. It's one of the best tools. I've never heard of it. I will be Googling it directly after. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So my Mm -hmm. favorite, not just the trick is not just Trello by itself. You have to like plug it into all these other Uh, things. I won't even look it up till you do the class. I will just waste my time running in circles, chasing my tail. My favorite is Fab or um, what is this app? It's like my new favorite thing ever. It's called Fabulous, and it like you actually oh. get to like create these morning routines, and it does it in this like beautiful way. And it's I am a sucker for UI. If it's not beautiful, oh, I will yeah. never use it. And this is like they hired illustrators to do these beautiful illustrations. So it's my new obsession. okay. I'm, I just wrote that down. It is the only way I get my physical therapy done every morning. So it's my my new obsession. So we are actually coming up on almost an hour and I have one last question. I just like had on my, I have to ask you list and I'm so sad to like stop the interview ever, but you had talked a little bit about, um, about weight and how you got treated by doctors. And I know Kiros has talked about this in the past and a lot of the people we've interviewed have talked about how doctors either minimize your symptoms until you lose weight or just use like the weight is the big issue here. And we'll talk about everything else afterwards. Do you have this problem? Is this something that you've experienced? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, so in the, first of all, I have a history of an eating disorder. Ah, um, see, look how much we have in common. (laughs) Yeah. Woohoo. Um, yeah, you and me and like 90% of, of, uh, yeah. Everyone else. Welcome to the club. No, I, it's because I have a history with eating disorder. My, the standard go-to methods for losing weight are not on the table for me because those are mental health issues. (laughs) Like exercising is a mental health issue for me. Um, I was just at a table. I was just at brunch with a bunch of runners and I like, I think running is great. I really want to be a runner, but I also know that my mental health, it's like running is not a totally great thing for my mental health. If I like go into it, I go way into it and it's a little too intense. See, I have the, if I am running, you need to start also because the only way I'm running is if something went really bad behind me. It's, yeah, that sounds like the worst idea ever. It's like, go and enjoy nature blurring past you. No, none of this is fun. Like, 
None of it sounds good. Well, I mean, there there are moments where I have enjoyed the feeling of my body move me, moving, but more often than not, like a hill will come up in the run, and then the my it triggers the same kind of loop pattern that I would go on when I was in an eating disorder, mm. which is why are you so bad at this? You know, the whole the whole tapes that get pulled through, like you need to be doing this this is the reason why you can't run up this hill is because all of these mm. other things, right? You will never speak to anyone else as meanly as you can talk to yourself. Like there is oh, no okay. one in the world. Like I couldn't even talk to Jeff Sessions as meanly as I talked to myself. I, I probably could, but it would be a stretch. <laughs> like, so I, you know, with, as far as like weight and doctors go, I've had a lot of experience with talking about my weight with doctors um, and how does that go? Because I have just started dealing with that because of my, all the drugs I'm on have caused a massive amount of weight gain, but I'm only allowed to eat 1200 well, calories a day to maintain what and it's like going right back into my old anorexia patterns. So talking so when to I, weird. When I'm with my doctor, when I have been with a doctor and they start to mention weight or they talk about weight, uh, well, first of all, I request to not see the scale uh, every time I go in. So I get on the scale backwards and usually like the nurse is like making lumps. She was weird about weight. Like, like she's, they're not writing that in my thing, but they notice like, Oh, this chick is not getting on the scale. Like everybody else does. She's not playing um, nice. <laughs> she's, she's doing this different. <laughs> and I get in the room. It depends on what I'm in the doctor's office to talk about, but like if weight does come up, my first card is, well, I had an eating disorder when I was in high school. And usually they get, their eyes get big and they're like, oh, okay, cool. Well, um, 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 you know, there was a couple times, um, before I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism where, um, like my blood pressure was a little bit high and there that the weight conversation happened, which was like, we want you to lose this healthily. Um, but like, I think that like this blood pressure thing is coming from the, the weight situation. And, you know, we, we can't know what exactly was going on because blood pressure is a day to day kind of thing for the most part. Um, just being but, in a doctor's office raises it already. Like, you're not in a comfortable, relaxed place. You're already scared. <laughs> like, right, right. So, but now that I have hypothyroidism, that's a really nice explanation. Hmm. I don't know if it's a full and complete explanation for my weight, um, the status of my weight. But I know, I, I know that that's a thing that goes through doctors' heads when I have an appointment with them. I love that you talked about taking back control of the appointment by deciding how much information you were willing to take in. And just, I, I like the idea of taking control of the appointment. That's, that's something that I will be using from here on out because like the first words are always, well, if you lost weight, you would dislocate as much. If you lost weight, you'd be able to exercise more. I'm like, we're ex just ignoring this entire genetic structure of my DNA that makes me dislocate all the time, which might make exercise a little hard. Like, it just feels well, from, like it's saying that they having, use like depression. Like it's, it's obviously your depression. You're obviously hysterical. You're obviously this, like this is the, or the fibromyalgia diagnosis. Not that there, I have fibromyalgia, there's a real diagnosis, but I feel like that's a lot of like what everyone gets shoved into when they don't know what else to say. Well, weight gain is not the disease. It's the symptom of something mm. else. And, you know, like in various points of my life, the weight gain was a symptom of recovering from an eating disorder. My body didn't have the metabolism to keep up with the nutrition that I was giving it. Um, or the metabolism was completely busted <laughs> from the get-go, you know. Or there's so many reasons that it's not worth going back to try to figure it out. But it is worth it to just go... Weight is a symptom. It's telling me something. The way that my body feels is a symptom of what's actually happening and what's actually going on. So, um, unfortunately, it's there was a really amazing article on was it the Huffington Post about everything? I think the title of the article was "Everything You Know About Obesity Is Wrong" or something like that. Um, really amazing article about how our 
healthcare system in the U.S., specifically in the U.S., is it's just an people are saying that obesity is an epidemic, but actually the way we handle obesity is the epidemic. That's a very important point, especially when it's six billion. How many billions of dollars is it? It's a billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar industry for people to lose weight. So when people are making that much money on a problem, I don't think there's a lot of um, a lot of honesty that goes with it with doctors, especially when they don't know. Like every doctor I know has said, like, I know more about obscure diseases than I know how people actually lose weight. Mm-hmm. which is a weird thing even for nutritionists to say. Like, there's no science? <laughs> like, didn't you? Okay. Frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, we are actually at an hour, which breaks my heart because I'm enjoying talking to you so much. I would Let's talk do it to again. you all day. Please, please come back on the show, and I would appreciate that. And definitely write those blog posts. And your book is? Bare Naked Bravery. And if you go to emilyannpeterson.com, it's available there. Or you can go on Amazon, and it's available in Kindle, paperback, hardback, and audiobook. And I'm reading the audiobook. So oh, my can... God. That's that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so you... you can just lay in bed, and I'll just read you stories. Yeah, especially, like, if you're like me, and you can't hold the big books. That would, That's yeah. very – and I love your voice. Um, if you go to Invisible Not Broken, all of this up is at the very top of the show notes. So you can buy the book. You can go to her website. You can sign up for The School of Bravery, which sounds pretty amazing. I am – I'll be waiting on pins and needles for the Trellio sort of uh, how to get my life in order <laughs> would be lovely. So um, come back to us next week. I'm going way far ahead on episodes, so it'll be a surprise. I don't know what next week will be, but tune in next week anyway. Um, if you want to support us, um, Invisible Not Broken on Patreon, please do that. Being sick in the United States is expensive. And until next week, be kind, be gentle, and be a badass. Yeah!